Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. Where to hunt podcast? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Hi, I'm Dan Small, host of Outdoor Wisconsin, and I listen to Where to Hunt. Nah, it's okay. I'm Kurt Geyer with Working Class Bow Hunter. I listen to Where to Hunt podcast, and it's decent. It's all right. Hey, this is Bud Fisher with Catching Deers, and I think the Where to Hunt podcast is all right. I'm proud of you. You found the right button. <laughs> or just a little above all right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Where to Hunt podcast, the podcast that connects public land hunting enthusiasts. Today is June 15th. It's a Tuesday. It's when we go live every Tuesday, 6 to 7 p.m. If you want to jump in the chat, you can. If you want to jump in the call, you can. If you want to jump in the video, you can. Look, we want to talk to you guys. Your audience want to hear from you. It's a two-way conversation. We don't talk at you. We talk with you. I just made all that up. Wow. Nice. Riffing. You're riffing. <laughs> All right. Shout out to our sponsors. We're coming at you from the OKest Hunter podcast. Studio gives us a lot of uh, kind of air cover to do dumb shit, and it's okay. It's so okay. We set the bar low, and we don't deliver. Uh, check out OKestHunter.com. Go to their website, and you can use code W2HPODCAST for 10% off. If you were looking to get something for Father's Day, you're not going to get it in time. I'll tell you that right now. But... You could, like, print something off and say, I got this for you, and it's going to come in the mail. There you go. That's what an OKS hunter would do. Right. That's what I freaking do. Uh, and then, you know, backwoods grind. I don't want to do the button thing again. Yeah, yeah I do. Oh, I like the challenge. Whether you're at work, in a tree stand, or simply waking up, it's important to be alert. And there's no better way to get there than with backwoods grind coffee. Ground fresh for every order. Delivered straight to your door. Backwoods grind coffee. Look at that. Not messing that up at all. Okay. All right. We got a couple more to go here. All right. And we're going to be doing good. So, all right. Uh, okay. I'm getting messages. So I'm getting distracted. I'll stop looking at that. But check out Spartan Forge. If you don't know who they are, you're living under an actual rock. But uh, they're the ones that sponsor our live call-in number and all of this technology you see. They didn't set it up, but they sponsored, so they basically paid for it. So, therefore, we can do all this stuff every single week because all of this technology, it's not cheap. Um, But they're a technology company themselves, so they are a data-driven deer predictability so so far application. So you can get a better idea of when deer are going to move, when they're going to be on hoof, and how they're going to negotiate certain different uh, types of terrain based on a lot of data they've collected from a lot of different sources. So be sure to head on over there, and then you can use code W2H to save yourself 20%. I don't know what you're drinking tonight, but I'm drinking drop time because we just got restocked because they don't let us go dry. I see that. Before I came up, I already grabbed a beer, so I guess I'll have to have a bourbon later. You might have to have a bourbon later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you say we are? We're brown water testers? Yes, we are. We're product testing. We are. This is batch number two, by the way. So we have remnants of batch number one. This is batch number two. I will say batch number two is a little bit better. 
Okay. Uh, which they said it would be because it aged in different barrels for a longer time. Better barrels, probably. Fair enough. So it does have a little bit more of a deeper flavor to it. And I tossed some olives in there, which is nice. You have olives in there? Yeah, I love those green olives. Holly had a pregnancy craving, so she was just eating them out of the jar, and I flunked a couple in my glass before I came up here. Olives and ice in your bourbon. Yeah, yeah. I got to have some water in there. I got water down. But I don't like mix it. What would you do? Mix it with soda? No, I would drink it straight. No, you would. Yes, or with one ice cube. One ice cube. Maybe a little bit of water. The Gold Reserve Johnny Walker says to put it over crushed ice with an orange slice. That's Johnny Walker. I'm just saying. That's how Johnny does it. Okay. It's not how I do it. How do we, why don't we see how Andy does it? Andy, how do you do it? Please tell us. <laughs> Our guest today, Andy May. Welcome to the show, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing good, guys. How are you? You're just watching us banter here and, you know, go back and forth about scotch and whiskey. Wondering why you decided to come on to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, uh, you guys had asked me a while ago, and I was, um, I don't know. You were shy? I, I had been on, yeah, I had been on quite a few, and I was just kind of trying to get away from them. Um, but, you know, it's been a while, and I've been I've been planning on getting back to you guys and, and doing a podcast. I've listened to a, several of yours, and I really like them, so I'm Thank excited you. to be here. Hell yeah, man. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. So, yeah. and you're out of Michigan, right? Yep, uh, southern Michigan, yep. Very cool. Southern Michigan, where does that put you? I got a buddy that lives in like Grand Haven or Grand Rapids or somewhere in that Grand general Haven. area. Yeah, I'm I'm a little uh, southeast of there, so I'm I'm actually um, I grew up in a town called Jackson. Um, it's close to like Ann Arbor, like University of Michigan, like that area. Um, and I recently, a couple years ago, moved down to a small town closer to the Ohio border because my daughter goes to school down here and. We were traveling a lot to, to her school, so we just moved to make everything easier on her. So I'm actually really close to the Ohio border. Um, in fact, my old stomping grounds of hunting um, are now much further than, you know, Ohio. So wow. if I'm hunting in Michigan, um, I have to drive, you know, uh, anywhere from, I don't know, 40, to, 40 minutes to an hour to get up to where I used to hunt. Um, a lot, a lot of areas that I used to hunt and now I hunt quite a bit down here in Northern Ohio. So I've, I've been exploring that more and more over the last several years. And it's nice cause I got, you know, it gives me a couple tags. I can, you know, bounce it back and forth across the border. Cool. Yeah. And those are both like Michigan from what I've heard from all the Michigan hunters. And there's a lot of them. I don't know why there's so many of you over there in Michigan More, yeah. you guys are all cooler than us here in Wisconsin for some reason too. But <laughs> it's it's hard hunting over there and then ohio seems to be like a quite the destination do you have a favorite yeah it is it is ohio ohio's an awesome state um now where i hunt in ohio it's literally i mean if you look at the record books um i'm, I'm at the bottom i'm at like the second to worst county um you know it, it's it's to me it's just another place to hunt um there's not a lot of deer it's low deer density but it's close i can get there um, I can get there quickly after work or on the weekend or whatever. So, you know, I, most people that know me know that, you know, I work two jobs and I'm pretty busy. I don't get, a, I don't get a lot of hunting time, uh, in comparison to some people. And certainly I get more than others. So I'm, I'm not complaining about it, but it is hard. It would be hard for me to travel to the, um, 
the I guess the good spots of Ohio uh, without making like quite a road trip out of it, which you know I do sometimes, but most of the time I'm up in northern Ohio just hunting uh, that low deer density and low trophy quality. But you know I still do okay. Nice. What is it you do for a living? I'm an occupational therapist. Um, I work at a school for children with special needs. So um, I work with a wide range of disabilities from cerebral palsy, like kids in wheelchairs um, that have trouble with movement. Um, So I do like a lot of like range of motion or getting them in equipment that might help them stand or walk. Sure. Um, But I also work with kids like with, that have autism and then all the way up to kids that are just in regular ed classrooms that have, might be maybe some delays with like their fine motor or eye hand coordination or strain. That's what makes you such a great deer hunter because you need to have a lot of patience to handle (laughs) that and the right training. So hats off to you. uh, And thank you for doing what you do. That's pretty incredible and amazing. You're also super freaking fit and you got kids. You're the bow hunting dad. Like you seem to do it all. Um, I guess I want to start with what, when did you start to like, you said you always want to be improving as a deer hunter. You always want to like, um, kind of just leveling up or however you want to describe it. But like, when did you cross that threshold where you started to notice you could execute on things that you thought were how things work? Like, when did you start to put the the boots to the, like the ethereal kind of things that happened or the theories you had in your mind? When did that start to map up for you? Um. Yeah. Well, I guess to comment on. Uh the improvement thing that's that's kind of just been my philosophy with hunting um from the beginning like obviously like most guys you know I first started hunting and I was I was so into it but I wasn't very good at it um but I tend to you know (laughs) I probably tend to be a little lackadaisical about a lot of things but when I'm passionate about something I tend to be real driven and disciplined and um I have this mindset of like just always trying to get better. Um, I have a hard time just staying like stagnant and um, we were talking a little bit off air before that, but you know, I don't know. It's just not in me to get good at deer hunting and then just kind of ride that wave or have, have a specific style or, or buy a, a decent piece of ground and just kill nice deer off that. That's, that's not in me, and that's not a goal of mine at all. It's um, like the, I wanna... the gamers out there that play Call of Duty. You start at zero, and you level up. And some guys will just be happy being leveled up. But what happens is if you start from from zero again, you have to level up all over again. And you get like – then you start to really move the needle. I feel like you're probably that. You you get to the end, and you could just ride that wave and rock it out. But then you'd like to start from zero and, and level up in a whole new way and see if you can master something else. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I, I guess I'm just always trying to improve, um, whether it's on my, uh, my shooting, you know, with my weapon or my tuning abilities, um, whether it's putting in more time scouting and trying to learn a specific piece of ground, um, whether it's trying to, um, learn more about a, a specific buck stalking, um, you know, different styles of hunting and different tactics. It's like, I like to, I like to focus on what I'm not good at and I like to try to bring that up. Um, I've talked about this a little bit, but like, you know, I used to be a really um, inconsistent, like early season hunter. Um, I would kill one occasionally more so on accident, I think. 
and um, I had a friend who was really, really good at it. In fact, he was like four or five years in a row. He killed his target buck on opening day of bow season, and I was just like, how is he doing that? Because I was doing a ton of scouting. I was 100% committed into becoming a better deer hunter, but I was doing all my scouting looking for sign postseason, which led me to really good spots during the rut. So I was a good rut hunter. I was I became a good rut hunter pretty early, um, but my weakness was kind of early and late season. So um, I picked up on that quite a bit. So I really um, dove into his head and and tried to learn his tactics and his philosophy. And then I turned that early season weakness into a strength. So now, now I feel really confident early season. I feel like that's a great time to get on a, a good deer um, if you can locate one. So it, it, that's just an example of me picking out something that I wasn't good at and trying to improve. And, and I'm doing that all the time. Um, you know, I'm doing that. It, 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 I guess I like to describe myself as I feel like I'm a pretty good deer hunter at a lot of things, but I don't feel like I'm a master at anything. Um, you know, and, and I'm perfectly fine with that because that keeps me hungry. It, it lets me know that there's like, there's room to grow and there's room to get better. And, you know, I see some of these guys out here, um, that I learned from and they're, they're awesome hunters and, um, you know, they're putting out great content and I learn a ton from those guys. So I like try to take that and build on that and try to improve, but I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to fall into just this is my style of hunting and this is the only way to do it. And this is how I kill big deer. Because as you can see, there's enough content out there now, enough guys, uh, there's different ways to do it. And, you know, you could probably rattle off five or 10 guys that you've had on your podcast that do things very differently, but are uh, successful. So that's kind of my style is I don't have a style. Um, I'm trying to improve and get good at every aspect of hunting and, you know, not just whitetail. I've started to, um, get into more of the out west game so i like being on my feet and on the ground and using glass and stalking and i don't know i guess that's my long-winded way of saying um i'm always trying to improve every every day i'm trying to think how can i get better with my is it my conditioning is it my mental toughness is it you know i need to put in more time scouting or whatever it is but i'm always trying to find something i would get really bored just buying you know 100 acres in ohio or or Iowa and hunting that and killing a 170 off it every year. It's just not interested. Right. So there's nothing wrong with being a jack of all trades, master of none. And like you said, you're going to learn a lot more and have appreciation for every little thing you learn and pick up and improve on along the way. There you go. Yeah. What do you, uh, early season, what's, what's your keys to success for early season? And are yeah, you big what into changed for you? When yeah. You, are you big into running trail cameras or is it yeah. more, more, you know, so scouting I, think as a, I think essentially what, you know, early on why I wasn't having the success there. Um, like my friend was is all of my scouting was based on like postseason. So I was looking for obviously, you know, trails, tracks, rubs, scrapes. And what that led me to is rut activity. Um, you know, it led me towards good, like pre-rut through rut spots, which is great because, you know, it's important to be able to capitalize during the rut and find those, those magical spots. But what I wasn't really doing was spending enough time, you know, before season, really trying to locate specific deer. Um, I would often be sitting, you know, bean fields or alfalfa fields or, or, 
food sources because that's what I saw on TV. Um, that's what I saw, you know, Lee Lakowski doing and Mark Jury. And it's just like, it's just not real world, um, you know, in a, in a pressured setting. So I, I spent a lot more time. I spend a lot more time now in the weeks leading up to the season. Um, oops, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple yeah, of like, yeah, videos around here. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, in the weeks leading up to the season really trying to pinpoint some target bucks. And um, it kind of depends on where I'm at. Um, if I'm, you know, in the Western Plains, you know, I'm using a lot of glass, getting on high ridges. It's more open country, so I'm doing a lot of sitting back and glassing. If it's, um, you know, I do a lot of early season hunting in Kentucky sometimes. It's been a few years, but um, – glass and bean fields um in the days leading up to the season really trying to find uh, a good buck to go after and in michigan where it's a little more pressured um there's much fewer mature deer um and they don't tend to come out into the food sources in daylight in in the in the heavy pressured areas even if it's like an oak flat or something on a piece of public they don't tend to come to those spots in daylight even in the beginning of the season there's just too many people. So, you know, in Michigan, I am using a lot more trail cameras. Um, occasionally, I'll, I'll shine. Uh, that used to be a tactic that I used more when I was younger, but I don't, I've kind of gotten away from it a little bit. But I, I do think that's pretty valuable. Um, it's just difficult for me to do now because I'm so far from, sorry, <laughs> so far from, uh, so far from some of my hunting areas. So it, basically, what it was is I wasn't putting in enough time and effort locating deer before the season like really like my scouting postseason was was so intense I would be out there five to six days a week um and every day after work this was before kids obviously but every day after work that's where I would be till dark I mean it was just I was completely eaten up with it um and when you put in that amount of time and you have the mindset of trying to get better and trying to learn you're gonna get better you're gonna learn a lot i wasn't just walking aimlessly through the woods i was taking notes i was finding the best of the best spots um and really picking out boy he really wants to be on camera um and really picking out the best spots for like certain wind directions and you know finding doe bedding and finding buck bedding and how this all relates to each other and finding those travel routes and funnels in between so that part of my process was dialed in but I was really lacking on that early season, um, that early season scouting and trying to find that, you know, that opening day buck to go after. So I just ramped that up. I spend just as much time now. I like those three weeks leading up to the season. Now, those are very, very important to me because I do think um, opening day of bow season is for me personally, somewhere in those first few days are, are some of the best chances at killing a big mature buck you know before the other people figure him out so i'm putting in that extra work trying to find those animals that other people aren't um and i've just gotten better at a kind of a knack at uh, figuring out where some of these older bucks are you know they tend to do things a little different they try to be a little um more secretive they're hiding more they're moving later in daylights they tend to move in certain spots depending on the terrain so i've just had i've, I've become better um at kind of pinpointing those spots so my the time spent is is more efficient now because i've learned over time that this is what mature bucks tend to do 
So I gravitate to those spots rather than just some random bean field and I'm, you know, glassing an edge or something. Well, I'm looking for those, those hidden saying. spots where they, where they enter those spots or, you know, things that are remote. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's my long winded way of saying that's, that's how I improved my early season hunting. I, I just started scouting more leading up to the season and I've been, I get real intense with it and I try to find one, two, as many bucks as I can to go after in Michigan. It's often one, sometimes two or three if it's a good year last year i had zero bucks that i wanted to go after that i could find that were mature i found some two and three year olds but i just wasn't interested um it was just a, a rough year in michigan but i did have some bucks in ohio a couple and one in particular that i found early season and that i really focused my time on on those deer i know greg found you know through trail cams one that was mature enough for him to want to go i was a big freaking deer and like you had some really good theories about where he was. And I think you maybe even definitely like at the very end or the post kind of late season, you figured it out. So it took you basically a whole season to figure it out. But then even though if you know where he is, the damn spot was so remote, so well fortified <laughs> that how the hell do you get, how the hell do you get in there? I and, got new and, ideas for this year. It's going to be a whole yeah. new way of going about it. It's just so then, then there's this whole other thing. So even though if you identify, and by the way, like identifying one for me, I'm obsessed with hearing you talk about this because there's areas that I want to go hunt, but I have no way to get eyes on animals in that space. There's no fields. There's no nothing. Like how the hell yeah. do you verify and validate or confirm that that's the deer you're going to go after? And then once you do, like Greg did, where he was doing a target buck last year, how, he just took him a whole season to figure him out, you know? So as far as we know, like the, the guy's still alive, which is great, but... Um, then it's becoming, how do you Give get it a few to weeks? We'll see if he shows up. Yeah. You got some trail cams out now. I might. What do you, what are you using for trail cams, Andy? Uh, like what brand? Yeah. Are you using cell cams? Are you going out and checking them or what do you got going on? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm not criticizing anybody that uses cell cameras, but I'm not a fan of them. Um, they won't work in most of the places I have. They just, there's no yeah. cell service there. So they're useless. Yeah. It, I don't know. I, I personally have a hard time with that technology. Um, and I, I, I understand that's probably a little hypocritical cause I use regular trail cameras and, and, you know, that's a hundred percent giving me an advantage. Um, the cell camera thing. Um, I don't know. And we all have lines that, you know, we kind of draw for ourselves. And, and for me personally, I don't know that I want to cross that one. Um, I may change my mind someday, but right now, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't like that. I don't like the advantage that they potentially could give you. No, no knock on anybody that does this, my personal feelings. And I do know people that are completely against trail cameras in general and use a stick bow and they probably think I'm cheating. So (laughs) my wife thinks I'm cheating when I use a Vexlar to go ice fishing. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's kind of funny. No, just curious because you know, if you're trying to you're saying you're going really aggressive for the three weeks leading up. What do you mean by that? Like, what are you, like, are you going so aggressive that you're going to tip this animal off and knock him off pattern or, or what are you doing when you say no, aggressive? So, so my, my early seasons, like I said, um, they've consisted of Michigan. They've consisted of Northern Ohio, Northern Ohio. I feel like I have to describe this so that it makes sense. It, it's, it's open country. Um, it's very flat pancake flat. Um, just seas of crops, you know, corn and beans and corn and beans and winter wheat. And, um, there'll be these little drainage ditches, these little tiny ditches that kind of meander through the landscape. 
the occasional small woodlot ranging from a couple acres to, you know, 10 acres would be a huge one. Um, and, you know, then these, you know, hedgerows. So it's, it's very open. There's not a lot of good security cover in that area. And then the other places where I've hunted early season is Kentucky and then, you know, out West. Um, so for me, it's, I mean, essentially it's like, if there's open ground, I'm going to use more of a glass, you know, sit back in glass, look for those little hidey holes, um, away from roads or at least not visible from roads. And I'm going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to use a combination of trail cameras and glass. Um, it's not like I'm diving into those woodlots, you know, and, and sitting, you know, on the edge for the evening and seeing what's moving through there. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at things from a distance and using that open country to my advantage. Now there's some spots in Michigan, like you described where, you know, there might not be any openings. It might be a marsh or a swamp or, you know, a big chunk of, of rolling, you know, hardwoods or something in ridges. In that case, I'm going to rely way more on, on trail cameras. You know, I'm going to let them kind of do my scouting, but I'll be looking for, um, you know, it's not just I'm, I'm blazing in there and checking a camera and blazing out. I'm, I'm always looking for sign. I'm looking for those big tracks. Um, I'm looking for, you know, if it's early season leading up to the season, I'm looking for, you know, those fresh rubs. Um, but I do rely if there's, if it's more cover than open, I rely, I tend to rely more on the trail camera. And if it's more open than cover, I tend to rely more on my glass. And they're both a combination, you know, in, in both scenarios, it's, it's a combination of both, but I kind of lean towards one or the other, depending on how open it is. That's logical. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes me feel yeah. better about my situation because it's yeah. just all thick shit here. And if well, it's-, it's a combination of a lot of things, but if we had the permission to get on the open stuff, that's what we'd be dealing with, you yep. know? But we don't, yeah. we, and we're 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 hunting the thick, which I'd rather hunt anyway, because I just feel better about it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll make a comment about the open stuff that I hunt. It, I hunt it because it's close. It's not because I want to hunt right. there. It's, it's right. because I can get there after work, or you know, after my daughter's basketball practice, or before her games on Saturday, or whatever. It's just what I had. It's kind of like, it's kind of like my. I consider it my home turf now. Sure, it's Northern Ohio and Southern Michigan, and. One of the things about, you know, being efficient, you know, it, it's important. It's for me, it's important to have places close to home. I, yes, I do my out of state trips. I love traveling and, and seeing new terrain and new areas, but um, the bulk of my season is, is in my home turf. You know, I figure inside an hour and a half of my home, that's my home turf. And that's the stuff I know intimately. And I try, I swear I do the bulk of my scouting. Um, so, you know, this open area just happens to be part of my home turf because I can get there and it's another tag. It's very low deer density. Um, and it's fun to hunt, but it can also be really frustrating. Like I, I killed a, a big buck there last year, but I hunted 12 times without seeing a single deer. And this is an open country. Like that makes lots me want to cry deer. as a grown man. That makes me want to cry from frustration. <laughs> yeah, and my yeah. wife would kill me. Yeah. And, and, you know, most people would, would have done that and, and said, there's no deer here. I mean, there's no deer, but I, but I know better. There are deer there. They just, they move through little small areas that are hidden. A lot of times it's below the ground in those ditches. Um, and there's not too many people chasing them on the ground like I do in that area. Um, so the, the good thing is it's close to home. It's another tag. The bad thing is it's very, very efficiently hunted during gun season. 
So I don't get a lot of big mature bucks there. Uh, there's bucks and there's decent, even some decent quality if they can get some age to them. But the hunters are very efficient because there's nowhere for them to hide. There's nowhere that's difficult for a hunter to get to that they can't push and drive out in big groups. And that's the way they hunt them. So yeah, having open land is, is fun. And the guys that have the thick or the, the big woods, the big hill country, they like, I wish I had more open land. Well, I don't know if you do because we have way less mature bucks in the open land. You can see them more. You can use glassing techniques and that's fun, but you do tend to get the older bucks in the more difficult terrain with more cover. So, you know, like where I hunt down in Southern Ohio, um, or even in, in Western Kentucky, there it's big woods, big hills, big ridges, much more mature deer on public land than some of the private land that I have permission to hunt in Northern Northwest Ohio, way more. So, um, you know, if you're looking for age and, you know, if you're looking for age structure and more mature bucks, you know, typically thicker is better unless you're going to be in some magical property in the Midwest or something, which, you know, I don't have, um, you know, some, some people do, but so yeah, it, it, it's, it's fun and it's different and it's challenging, but I'm lucky to find one or two deer over, uh, you know, probably, uh, gosh, a lot of very, very, very large area to go after in that, in those, you know, in that Northwest Ohio area. Um, Bill's asking us a question here on the chat. No, he's asking Andy the question. Oh yeah, it but looks he's like going to have you relay it. I'm going to relay it. it looks Go like, ahead. It looks like it's an inside baseball here, but uh, what is your bow tuning regimen like? Would you help me tune my bow, and why not? <laughs> is that Bill Thompson? Of yeah. course it is. Oh yeah, no, I'm not going to help him. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, yes, Bill, I'll, I'll help you. Um, I don't claim to be a tuning expert, but I, I do tend, to, <laughs> I do tend to take it to extreme detail and it has it has helped me become uh, a better archer a better understand i have a better understanding of archery and it certainly has helped me in my opinion uh with my success in the deer woods so real quick rundown um you know i'll skip over the basics of you know obviously the, the obvious stuff right you want your cams timed and synced together right, right. you want your rest set up timed you want your also. rest timed perfectly yep um, you know, everything down the middle, that's, that's just standard. You know, everybody does that. You want to be able to, you know, everything lined up perfectly. Yep. You want to be able to shoot that bullet hole. Um, so what, what a lot of people do, a lot of bow shops do is they, they get you back there. They eyeball everything, or they might put some levels on there. They get you back there and they'll put you, you know, at five feet or whatever with your fletched arrow and you shoot, you got a little tear and they bump your rest a little bit. Uh, you got a little tear left. They bump it a little more. And then you got your bullet hole. And they're like, okay, see ya. You're all set, right? And then you leave and you go kill deer and you kill deer just fine. And, and that's totally fine. But th- to me, that's like, that's like step one, you know? That's, where, <laughs> that's where I'm at. You're, you're partway there. And I, and <laughs> yeah, I keep, yeah. and I keep yeah. fighting with you on it. But whatever, you're going to do what you're going to do. Anyway. Or not yeah. do what I'm not going to so, do. So, you know, where, where I, where I go with that is, you know, I have my rest set at a certain spot and I don't want to move it too much. If I'm getting a tear, I like to have it set running down the middle and I'll give a, a little wiggle room there to, to adjust my rest. But if it's any big adjustment, I adjust that at the cams. I, oh, I shoot a Matthews. I should say every, 
every uh, bow is a little different in the tuning process, but the, uh, the Matthews have this top hat system, which yep. is basically shims. So I set my rest in the middle, and if it's a big adjustment, if I'm getting a big tear, I moved I move the cams left or right, okay, to correct that tear. If it's a very minor tear, I'll just bump the rest. So small tear, move move the rest. If it's something big adjustment that I need, I move the cams. I use those top hats. I might switch them. Um, and basically what that's doing, it's moving the cam so it, it moves your arrow kind of like this. Um, so I'll, I'll get my bullet hole like that through, you know, and have everything lined up perfectly and I'll get my bullet hole. Everything running down the center of the bow. And then what I do is... Um, I mark everything down. I mark my cam. So I'll always know if something moves. Like I have on each side of the limb, I'll do a little pencil mark. So if something ever, if something stretches or anything, I'll notice that like on a hunt, I'll look at that, those marks, those reference marks. I'll be like, Oh man, this cam, you know, is advanced a little, like something stretch, something move. I gotta, I gotta shoot this through paper and verify and, and make an adjustment. And I'll do the same thing with my rest. You know, things tend to come loose. You know, I've had that happen on hunts. Um, my rest and my sight, I'll make those little those little reference marks. But um, going back to paper, so once I get that perfect bullet hole with a fletched arrow, I actually get a dozen bare shafts, mm-hmm. and I will shoot each one individually through paper until I get a perfect bullet hole. So that I get the gross paper tune with a fletched arrow, you know, that will correct something that's slightly imperfect. Mm-hmm. But when you throw a bear shaft through there, there's no correction. So if you're, if you, if anything is out of alignment at all, as far as that string path pushing through the, pushing through that arrow, you'll notice that with a bear shaft. And I'll adjust that till I get a perfect, you know, perfect circle uh, with no tear at all with that bear shaft. And then um, what I do is I shoot all twelve of them. And if if I'm not getting a perfect bullet hole with any one of them, I spin it a quarter. They call that knock tuning knock indexing mm-hmm. if you're using a high quality arrow i use um the day six arrows um and then i also have another bow set up with black eagle both high quality um knock indexing is a bit of a thing of the past you don't really need to do that if you're using high quality aerials but sometimes i get an arrow that just doesn't want to behave and i'll turn it a quarter shoot it again turn it a quarter shoot it again until i get that bullet hole I've had a lot. Of, reason, what's that? I've had a lot of luck knock tuning. In fact, I did a full dozen, and I helped a few other people knock tune arrows. Um, and there you go. It, yeah, it it's a great technique. Once the bow is all squared up and ready to go. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you get twelve. You know, you get your dozen or two dozen all shooting bullet holes. That gives you a lot of confidence. Like I'm shooting a perfectly straight arrow with no fletching. And then what I do is I'll wherever I get that bullet hole, I'll mark the top of the arrow with a, like a silver sharpie, mm-hmm. and then I'll go fletch all my arrows, and I fletch them all with that silver sharpie up, yep. you know. So, so then now I have tw- a dozen arrows that are perfectly spine indexed, you know, shooting through shooting perfect. I'll double check, you know, a few times shooting through paper with a fletched arrow just to make sure I'm not getting like rest contact or anything. Um, but as I'm you know, I kind of take a step back there, but when I'm building my arrow, I like to build my components. So I like to cut my arrows, square the ends, weigh each component. Um, I'm real precise with it. So if I get a component that's running a little heavy, you know, I might not use that one. Or if I got one that's, you know, a grain or two higher, but this shaft is a grain or two less, I might pair them up to kind of equal everything out. 
Yep. Yeah, and what what weight total weight is your arrow setup? By the way, are you shooting heavy arrows? Yeah. So um, we're literally gonna have you and Greg weigh arrows. It's like a pissing match, but with weighing arrows. Yeah. Well, let let me answer that in one second, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because I want to finish. I want to finish Bill's question. Um, but so once I get those twelve, you know, arrows fleshed up, then I go out and I'll group tune, and you know, I'm shooting at distance and, and by having that um that bow bear shaft tune normally i can throw on any broadhead and it's it's there you know what i mean it's right there so giving that little extra effort in the beginning saves me a lot of time and headache after the fact and then what i do is with my arrow builds i'll i'll tweak things i might increase point weight a little or decrease point weight a little try different fletching configurations what i'm trying to build is the most accurate and forgiving setup possible um i have i'm fortunate enough to have um a few bows to tinker around with and i kind of set them up differently i have a main bow that's like my main hunting bow but then i set the other ones up differently for different things so um you know there's certain fletching configurations that i've tested against each other you know low profile versus high profile four flesh versus three flesh how much helical you know two degree versus three degree um, I've, I've tested these things and I've come up with what works best for, for this particular arrow build and this particular arrow build, it might be something a little different cause I might be using a fixed head, um, needs a little more steering in the back. So a little bit longer or higher profile vein where, you know, my total archery challenge bow or my, my out West bow for open country. Um, I use a, a, a more moderately weighted arrow really low profile fletching and a, a mechanical head because I want to be able to, um, I want an arrow that's quiet in flight because the shots are going to tend to be a little longer out, you know, in open country. I want something that's forgiving in the wind. So I don't want real high profile fletchings. I get something a little lower so that it bucks the wind a little better. I like a, a I like a helical because it, what it does is it bores into the wind and it'll tend to keep that back end of the arrow in a crosswind a little more in line instead of like blowing way out one way or another when it, when it catches that crosswind, it'll, it'll bore a little better. But I don't want so strong of a helical where I get a big drag effect at like 50, 60 yards. A lot of times you get this, they call it like a parachute effect and at 50, 60 yards, that, that arrow will really start slowing down and then it will start doing this and then your groups open up. So every bow and every arrow that I have is built for a certain purpose. So to answer your question, my out West bow, which I consider like my mule deer bow, antelope, um, you know, Western plains, anything where accuracy is going to be my top priority. I'm using, um, my Matthews traverse and I'm shooting an arrow that it, I think it totals out at 440 grains. Again, it's got that, uh, a, a small, low pro profile mechanical head. It's got a four flesh, low profile vein in a two degree offset left helical. And that thing is just the most, it's the most accurate and forgiving setup I've ever built. And I, I tested all kinds of components and different things with that bow, but I built that for that purpose. It's a bit big. It's a bit heavy to carry around like or maneuver in the tree stand. So I, I tend to go with something different. I can use that in a tree stand, but um, the other arrow setup that I have, that's going to be more like, I guess my all around setup 
it run, it's right around 508 grains. And um, with that one, I have a little bit higher profile fletching. I can enter, I can throw a fixed head, like a day six head on there or my sever 1.5 broadhead and it steers them beautifully. And that's kind of like my, kind of like my middle of the road all around. Like, I feel like I could kill an elk with that. I could kill an antelope with that. I could kill a mule deer with that. And I certainly could kill uh, whitetails out of the tree stand or even ground blind hunting. Um, and then I also have an arrow build that's a little heavier than that. That's right about 560. Again, um, I, I, I shoot a lot, man. I shoot a lot of arrows. I love, I love this stuff. I geek out about it. And, uh, that was the most technical explanation of a bow setup that I think I've ever heard. And Greg has (laughs) given me a, give you a run for his money, but you just definitely trumped him with how (laughs) the two degrees of the helical, like, man, that's. That's usually what I run on most of mine is two degrees helical. I, I, hate, messed, I hate you both. I haven't messed around <laughs> with, I think I played with a one degree and then a straight and then the two degrees, just like you said, it, it bites into the wind better and it just keeps bad things from happening. I think Taylor, right. Taylor so, Chamberlain's picking up what I'm putting down. He just said, Andy, is it true that you taught Chuck Norris everything that he knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I was doing, I I was, years ago i was able to get my hands on a really high quality camera and do some slow motion footage um my buddy garrett prawl is is doing some of this now and it's really cool because he's kind of taking it to the next level but what i what i found was like in a crosswind um, i was i was trying to what i was trying to do was was get something that was had awesome trajectory um was really quiet in flight but still had enough steerage for you know a mechanical head so i was tinkering with like just a barely slight offset. So I didn't want that arrow slowing down um, like with a big helical. Cause I'd always run like a, as much helical as I could ever get. And when I went to like a, like a one degree offset with like no helical, just like a straight offset. What I, what I found was like, if there was a crosswind on that, on that video footage, if there was like that slow motion footage, that crosswind would hit the back of that arrow, it would blow it way out you know, like a 10 or 15 mile an hour crosswind, which we, we get that all the time. Right. So it would blow that way out like this. And so then I was like, okay, I need something that has a little more steering, a little more, I need to create more spin. You know what I mean? You could almost see the arrow and it was like, it was coming out of the arrow or coming out of the bow and it didn't start spinning until, you know, five or 10 yards down. So then I started messing more with a little more helical, a little more helical. And then it was like really starting to turn right as I was leaving. And what I could tell was I'd have two arrows with, with those different fletching configurations. And the one that was boring into the wind kept better alignment in that crosswind. So with that one that didn't have much uh, helical at all, it was just more offset, was really getting blown offline. And it would correct. I mean, it would correct, but it would correct down there at, 20, you know, 15, 20 yards. Yeah, you watch it do a big tail whip and then right. like before it goes. Yep, and it looks like this going down. Yep. Um, but the one that, when I started putting more helical on it, um, and, and, a, and, and then I started messing with different, you know, fletching sizes and lengths and everything else. But when I started putting a little more helical on it, it started turning quicker out of the bow, and it was boring into the wind. And anytime that crosswind is going to catch that fletching, it's it's going to blow it offline and just – it's just, that's just the, what happens. But the more it's spinning, it's think about like a, like a really good quarterback throwing a tight spiral. 
you know, like that wind's blowing, but it's, it, it's spinning so hard. It kind of keeps it on track. Right. And it's the same thing with an arrow, but I, I do feel like if you are going to reach out with longer practice, or if you're going to go antelope hunting out West, you know, it's very, very difficult to get inside 30 yards on those critters. So you, you, you are going to be faced with some longer shots. That's why I tended to take a step back from like that full strong helical and went to, I settled at that two degree because it was, it gave me enough spin where it, uh, you know, it bucked the wind good, but I didn't get that big group opening like at, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 yards. I didn't get that, my group size start blowing up, you know, substantially like out of proportion for what it was at like, you know, 20 to 50. So that's kind of where I settled with, with, with that. And I use different, like I said, arrow fletchings for different heads. Um, I, I like, I really like those boning heat veins for my mechanical heads, but they're not quite enough for like my day six fixed heads. So with those, I use, I use the day, I actually use the day six fletchings, which I, I love. They're quiet. They're a little higher profile. They're a little longer but they steer those fixed heads better and they're a little overkill for mechanical. So that's why I use two different ones. Sure. You're building for conditions really. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like I said, I take this to extreme detail. Not everybody has three bows, you know, to mess around and three arrow setups. So now if, I know if why Bill wants you to do it for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same reason I have Greg do it for me. Well, I really, yeah, if, if and... it was, if, if it was just a guy who was like, "Hey, you know, I'm gonna, I want to build a whitetail setup," I'd, t- I'd tell him to pick that middle of the road, um, you know, that 500 grain arrow, good steering, yep. probably a fixed, fixed broadhead, um, and, and just run with that, you know, and, and then try different things to see what you can do to group the best. But that middle of the road is is always a good, you know, it's always a good thing. I'm blessed with a long draw length, so you know, I can shoot that 440 grain arrow and still get plenty of punch, you know, more than probably a guy shooting 28 inches with a 500 grain arrow. You know what I mean? So I I do have a little more flexibility with that. What's your draw um, length and weight, by the way, just curious on, on your setup with that then too. Um, It's like, it's just under 30 inches. So I run it. I actually measure, like if if y'all were to go into a shop, I I measure at 30 inches, um, maybe even 30.5. But I, I set my bow at 29.75 because that's what I shoot most accurately. So um, I had a bow set at 29 and a half. And uh, a guy made a comment. He's like, you look a little, you know, a little crouched. And so I had him take a picture of myself. And, I, you know, I agreed. I wasn't like fully extended. I didn't look, I didn't look silly, but I wasn't like fully extended proper form. So I got measured at the shop and they measured me, I think it it was like 30.5 or something like that. So we adjusted it. So I was at like 30 or 30.5 and I shot and I shot okay, but I didn't shoot as good. Uh, I I noticeably had bigger groups. Um, So what I did is I started lowering that, um, that draw length until I got to the best grouping. So I started testing at 30 and a half, you know, 30 and a quarter, 30 and I settled at 29.75 and that's where, that's where I shoot my best. And I never would have known that. Like they, most guys just, Oh, I'm 30 inches and they, you know, leave the shop and that's what they, but that's just not how my brain works. You know, it's like, I want to be the best I can be. So I test it. I well, test if you go it to fail. Then you know where your limitation is and you know what it looks like. Then you feel super confident in the setup that you do have rather than just, well, I guess this is where it's at. 
when you start to tinker with things that way, like Greg does too, then you really get to understand those thresholds, and that's where you build the most confidence. You can that's still get right. Confidence, and, and to but... me, and to me, that's what's it's it's really transferred over to increased confidence. Like I feel, I feel like I have the most accurate and forgiving setup I could possibly build. So when I pull my bow back, you know, I don't know. I just I have this like superior confidence that I'm going to get it done, and and there's no question in my mind that there's going to be some, it's some, some sort of mistake is due to gear. If there's a mistake, it's on me. And that's the way I want it. Um, I want it on me. Um, because I can always work on, you know, on improving that, but you don't want to I, want to your sure, I want to make sure my gear is on point and this stuff. Like it makes a difference. So I shot the total archery challenge, um, this past weekend in Michigan and you know, all this detail I go into, it, it makes a difference. Like I don't go there worrying about how many, arrows I'm going to lose. I'm, I'm worrying about how many I'm going to put through both lungs. You know what I mean? Like it, I don't go there thinking I'm going to lose arrows and I don't lose arrows, but it's a confidence thing. It's not being cocky. It's not like I'm some awesome archer. I just spend a lot of time at it. I put in a lot of detail. So I have a lot of confidence, but these, these things that I do to increase, um, forgiveness and accuracy, it, it, it translated into that total archery challenge. Um, you know, I'm, I was making awesome shots through the vitals, like shot after shot after shot. And it wasn't, there's no anxiety. There's nothing. It's just, it's just confidence from doing it so much. Um, but I, I love archery. I love tinkering with archery. I love improving, improving upon that part of my, of my hunting, the actual shot execution and the performance with my weapons. So to me, this is fun. It's not extra work. I have some friends that like, they don't even really care if they shoot their bow or not. They just pull it out of the, you know, their case two weeks before season, fire a few arrows and they go kill big deer. But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not like that. So it's just not how my brain works. And I enjoy this. This is, I like to do this when I have spare time. You got a lot to teach people, man. There's when you have, when you're, when you're that deeply like informed on things through experience, you, you bring a lot to offer. It's no wonder you've been running a podcast circuit. We could, we've been talking for an hour this could be a six hour long podcast and we wouldn't even scratch the surface of squeezing all the juice out of you for everything that you know. Um, which tells me that we're gonna have to bring you back for sure. But I, I mean, Greg, until I talked to Andy, you were like the guy. There you go. See, you got a new, you got a new co-host. <laughs> but he doesn't live. I can retire he now. He doesn't live. I can just, I can just stick to plumbing and heating now. <laughs> no, it, it's impressive, man. Some of the stuff that you've been able to pull off and, and like, Scrolling through your, your profile and the deer that you put down, it's no joke. Like, it's one thing to say you know, there's huge racks or whatever, but when the deer are that mature and they're that much harder to hunt, they're that much harder to close the gap on. I've only gotten now to the point where I have sightings of deer like that. I'm trying to figure out how the hell to close that gap. And as you know, going from someone that's just hunting because their dad brought them or because they you know think they should do it or whatever to, oh, I like this, to, oh, I want to take this seriously, to... Now that I've been doing that, here we go. I've started to make some moves. Now I get to get the eyes on these things. Now I'm at this other stage of how do you val- how do I validate if I even know if I'm in the right area? Like I very well could be, but if I don't see a deer, I have no way to know that I was actually even close. So it's really grueling mentally in that regard because you don't. It's not like someone's there to tell you, yeah, you're. This is the fucking money, man. This is the sh- this is the shit. This is the spot. Until you have those confirmation sightings and things like that, you just don't know. And then yeah. it's a matter of, well, did I play it right or wrong? Did it, how, how did the chess match go? 
Like, where right. is the win? What call should I be throwing? Should I not be throwing calls? Like, there's just so many variables. This is a never-ending game. There's no finish line. So the fact that you're always improving or continuously in- attempting and trying to improve, I have a lot of respect for that. I'm, yeah. I enjoy well, that, the, the game a lot. I think it's a ton of fun. It'll never get old. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, there's there's no way anybody can master this. And when you when you when you feel like you have it figured out, um, that's when I feel like you become stagnant. You know, you just start riding on your previous success and your previous knowledge. And you know, take so and so from whatever YouTube channel or or whatever for, forum or or whatever. And, you know, there's a lot of guys out there now that are very transparent and are very generous with their information. And you can see, you know, that they have a specific style and it suited them really well. And, um, you know, then you got this guy over here that hunts completely different that has even better success, you know. And then this guy over here that does things completely different. And maybe there's some overlap or it's a combination of, you know, of, of the two or whatever. And they're having success. I mean, there's so many guys out there now. It's, it's pretty cool with social media that all these guys are coming forward and are willing to share and they put their stuff out there. Um, I think it's awesome because it's come to light. You know, there's not just two or three really good DIY hunters. There are, there are tons of them. You know, there are tons of big buck killers out there that we didn't know about. Oh, they're still out there. The, the ones that have no social media presence at all that we all know, by the way, that they're like, you better not talk about this shit on your podcast. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not known. But they have bigger deer in the wall than anyone else I've ever seen. You know, like, that's, that's, right. that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we only know the ones that, you know, self-promote and, and put, out, put out content. And, uh, you know, it's cool. It's cool to see. It lets people know, like, hey, this is obtainable. If this is a goal of yours, which, you know, if they're listening to your podcast, I'm sure they're cut from the same cloth. They want to be better deer hunters. Um, but when you see, when you really see like the guys that are, you know, I guess what some might say, like the cream of the crop, you know, they just seem to always get it done. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, they, if you really look at their life and most of them have talked about it, there was a time, uh, even even it might even be up till currently where they put hunting in front of everything. Um, yeah, it's like know, that with and, anything. You talk to a business owner that's making millions of dollars. There's sacrifice. You have like if you're going to do something and do it well, there's some sacrifice to that. That's right. And that you know those there's those guys that you know put it. That's all they did. They obsessed about it. Um, they, it's all it's what they lived for. They put it before their job. Some guys put it before their family, before their marriage. And, you know, it's for me, I was lucky because I became obsessed with it at, at, uh, I got into hunting late at 18, but I was obsessed with it from the very beginning. I killed my first big buck, my second year hunting. And it was just like a snowball effect after that. Like I didn't go through a process of shooting tiny deer. You know, I shot some two-year-olds, you know, but that quickly evolved to three-year-olds. And before I know it, I was, you know, chasing some bigger deer and, but that there was a, a long period. I had kids late too. A long period where that is all I did. I mean, I was in. I was the guy in college, you know, where there was this big house party to go to, and I would go hunting, and people would make fun of me, and then I'd come back, and then I'd go to the house party, and drink and whatever, 
and then wake up and go hunting, you know, and everybody else was, that's just what I, it's just what I did. I was, it was, I was completely obsessed with it. I scouted five to six days a week for, you know, over a decade, like probably a decade and a half, literally five days a week. That's all I did, you know, before marriage, before kids, before any of that. And it takes that level of obsession to get to that that real high level. And I'm not even saying I'm there, but if you talk about the guys that, you know, the guys that are real well known that have some age on them now and that longevity and they have these walls that are like, Whoa, you know, um, it, it takes that level of obsession and discipline and a lot of times sacrifice on, you know, some of the, some of these guys sacrifice things that I'm not okay with sacrificing. So once I, you know, once I had my, my, my daughter and, you know, those things start to take precedence, you know? So then what happened with me is like, I had this really strong base, right. Of, of knowledge and experience, literally hunting almost every day of the season, scouting almost every day of the week for, you know, 10 to 15 years. I mean, I lived for it. And now I have this other, these other responsibilities that now I had to learn how to become more efficient. I had to learn to be smart with my time and not just, not just kill deer by volume hunting, but by killing deer with like these real calculated strikes where I gather in so much information that when I go in, it's like a very high percentage sit. So that's kind of what I've evolved to is more of a, like an efficient hunter um, with, you know, I work two jobs now because I was, I was due to some, you know, unforeseen circumstances I needed to bring in more income. And, you know, it makes it hard to, I can't scout five to six days a week anymore. I can't, I can't even scout half that. So, um, but I make sure I get my scouting in on key times, which is postseason and those weeks leading up to the season. And those really help me. I just really hit it hard in those two windows and then my in-season scouting. And I'm really, really particular and picky with the days that I go and hunt. And, you know, if I'm going to dive in, it's for a kill. You know, it's for a kill that I feel real confident in. I have that information. I don't, I almost never just go sit anymore. And I mean, I, I'm not even hope, interested right? in going and sitting and hoping. I'm, right. I'm not even interested in it. I will move in when the time is right, when I have the information that I want, or I'm going into a spot that I know is going to be hot at this time of year under these types of conditions. And I'll be disciplined enough to stay out until that timing is perfect. You know, when it's that late October or that, you know, that second week of November and I get that perfect win with that good cold weather. And I, I won't set foot in that spot until that time. Well, here's when a good, I go here's in a good because plug I did then. that because I kept pressure off. As I say, here's I a good can, plug then too. Are you, are you finding value in the Spartan Forge app? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's something I'm super excited about. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, helping out i'm a part of, of, of spartan forge and, and helping kind of develop this app and it's got some really cool features aside from like the prediction um which is awesome you know i I'm, I'm a nerd about deer studies i really like you know when they do those write-ups and the maps with the deer studies and like you know these this buck here did this throughout the season and see where they go and how they avoid avoid pressure i love that stuff um so it's got the prediction that draws from those actual wild deer studies, which is awesome. So it's like, it's, it's legit prediction, not just some Arbitrary, random guy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not some random guy that's, 
using his experience from his awesome property in Iowa. Or like, or, you know, buck kill data. That That's like great. That just means that that's when deer died, or, right? That's mean, Yeah, or, or, or Wisconsin or Ohio where they have like this big piece of private land. I mean, right. yeah, that's valuable. And I, I'm, nothing to take away from those guys because those guys hunt their asses off and they work hard. But it's a different it's a different type of hard work and a different type of hunt. You know, I don't think anybody will argue that. Um, but what, what's I like about that sport and far, forage is that it draws from real live you know, real live, um, deer studies for their predictions. So that is valuable. And this will be the first year where I really get to use that. What I, what I've been able to do, um, what I've been able to do is, is work with Bill and some of the other guys and and be able to put stuff into this app that, um, basically kind of like turn it into something that what we would really want, like all in one place. So for me personally, like you know, what I often do is like, like I'd get on the weather app, you know, and then I get on this, this wind, uh, yeah, windy, this windy. I've been using. Yeah. yeah. And then I get on windy, you know, and then I'm doing all these, I'm getting on like three or four things to check out the conditions. Well, now this is all going to be in one spot, you know, which is awesome. Right. It's going to all be on one spot. I'm going to have the wind mapping for my specific location, the weather forecast. And one of my favorite things is historical weather data and it's like why why does that matter well i keep a journal of all my hunts um i've been doing that since 1998 every single hunt that i've ever um been on in detail you better digitize that yeah yeah eventually yeah (laughs) um but but i like to be able to um go back and look at historical weather data or maybe something i missed as far as like i didn't put anything about barometric pressure a lot of times I left stuff out, you know, about the weather or wind speed or, you know, and I just wrote more of like what I saw. Um, I got better with that as time went on. I started putting more of those details, but now I can look back and cross-reference some of that, or, you know, maybe I'm not exactly up to date on my, my weather journal and I see, um, you know, I see a buck do something and, you know, I forget to write it down or whatever. I can go back on that and, and draw that. I used to have to go to Weather Underground to get that information. But now it's like it's all in one one place. And then a cool thing that he added, you know, I, I, I think a part of it was because of our talks and how much I do, uh, how much I journal. He, he actually is putting like a journal feature in there. So now you'll be able to put in your information and your sightings and all this. It'll it'll populate all that data that I'm like looking up and, you know, going to weather underground and like, okay, what was the moon phase? You know, what was this? What was that? It's, it's going to populate all that. So now I just have to like voice text or text while I'm on stand, like what I'm seeing. And I'm going to have that journal that I've been handwriting, like, you know, for, for decades. And I'm going to have that all right there. So it's super cool. Um, I'm really excited about it. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Like, in the development of this, like we got a, we have a little like side uh, messaging app where we kind of brainstorm ideas and we bounce it off each other. And it's just, I don't know. I'm just real thankful to be a part of it. And there's some great guys involved, some really, really good hunters. Yeah. Some of them were giving you shit in the chat. So you have to go back and uh, defend yourself later. Oh yeah. I'm sure they are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They always give me shit. But um, yeah, man, it's just, it's cool. It's like kind of like a one, stop shop for everything you know instead of like bouncing around like we've all done it you know you're going to calto you know or going to like weather underground for um 
you know, for the historical weather or windy for this, and it's going to have all that stuff on there. So it's, it's super cool. Um, and by the way, Garrett, who you just mentioned, he asked, uh, speaking of weather, if there's any specific sets of conditions you'll, like you mentioned, making calculated moves that you're not going to just go sit to sit. Um, yeah. You know, are there any, any conditions that you're like, this is it, I got I to gotta get out there, or I got to stay home, like hunting in the rain as an example? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously if, if you're, if you're sitting in a spot that you is going to require movement, um, meaning, um, you're in a spot that, you know, if the deer are going to move farther or there's going to be good movement activity, I mean, it's hard to beat that, you know, the, that when that cold front hits So specifically, if there's like a big weather front with lots of wind and severe weather and like, then you get that, that calmer wind day, but it's still chilly after that. That's always a great, that's always a great hunt, you know, because like that, that weather hit and they kind of, the movement gets subdued. So they're kind of hunker down and, you know, maybe they get a little hungry and they get a little, you know, they're used to being hunkered down for a few days. And then that, that calm weather after the fact, that's always a good day for overall movement. So, you know, if you're hunting after a, you know, a buck, you know, that you're, you're maybe you can't get quite, close enough to his bed or something and you need a little more movement just because of he's got such an advantage where he's at that's great or uh you know a november rut sit those are those are some of the best sits those high pressure calm mornings right but it depends on what you're what you're going after like if i if i'm really dialed in on a buck and i know where he's betting i don't really care what the conditions are um i'm more worried to like can I get close? How close can I get? Can I get close enough to kill this deer where he will move in daylight? If it's dry and crunchy and I can't get there, I won't go. But say it's rainy or, or, or there is a rain that stopped and everything's wet and I can get in there closer. I'll go whether it's cold front or not. Like I know where the deer's bedding, no deer. Well, I'm not going to say no deer. Um, I don't believe deer very often, stay in their beds till after dark i i have i have seen one literally a mature buck stay just about till closing time and he he stood up and took five steps and i shot him and he took literally five steps out of his bed at the very last legal shooting leg but that's the latest i've seen like they they move in their little core area their their area where they feel safe so it's not that i'm always waiting for a cold front i'm waiting for the right conditions to get you the access you need. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. I and I, I do believe that most times, um, you can, you can capitalize on almost any condition, you know, if it's dry and hot, um, you know, you know, October or, you know, early October, most guys are like, man, I'm sitting, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait till the next cold front. Well, dry and hot gives you a set of conditions that makes cool, low spots, um, you know, it makes them more valuable. It ups their value, you know, especially if you got like a little secluded water hole that's close to bedding or a little creek that goes through, you know, a little creek bottom where, where there's bucks bedding and you know, they are. So it, every set of conditions gives you an opportunity. Um, windy, you know, most guys, if it's, you know, real high winds, they want to sit home. Um, and, and I'm like, that's a good spot stock opportunity, time. right? That's right. You know, I like to, I like to still hunt, I like to still hunt through, through bedding areas, um, through thick cover. And I like to be on the ground. I'm very comfortable on the ground and I like moving and just slipping through the cover. And that gives me those conditions to do that. 
you know, it's very it's hard. It's that for loud and windy and that. everything's blowing around. They don't know. what It could be a tree branch falling. They're not going to, like, think twice about some other sound. I've gotten I've gotten so close to, to big deer doing that. Um, I love it. But if I know my week, you know, I'm looking at my week and, you know, I have basketball with my daughter this day, this day, this day, and work late this day, and I know I'm only going to have two days to hunt, I might have to sit that day out. You know what I mean? I might do that because I'm supposed to have that that 20 degree drop in temperature on Friday. So if you are limited on time, it's like, okay, I can only hunt two days. Maybe I don't pick that windy day, but I do believe that's a set of conditions that if you're, if you're a skilled enough hunter and you're patient, you're comfortable on the ground and you like that style, man, I, I, I feel really deadly in that situation, especially if I know I'm going, working through an area that has, um, a buck, a buck that I, no, I'll shoot or, or maybe even a decent number of good deer in that area. Cause it's a, a good part of the state or a good state, you know? Um, I don't know. I personally, I personally see that and I start drooling, you know, I love, I love those conditions, but, um, overall, yeah, of course, everybody knows that that cooler weather means, means more movement, but it, like, I do think what I've noticed too, is like certain conditions, like it could be 70 and drop off to 30 and you'll have really, really bad movement. And what I think that is, is that if when you get that type of, I've seen that like consistently. And I t- I've t- actually talked to Jared Scheffler about this from Whitetail Adrenaline because he's out in the field, you know, a lot, you know, whether he's filming or, or hunting. So he sees this. But I, I asked him if he saw that. He said 100% because I've seen it where these days, these drop off, these big, giant drops. And you should see this awesome boom of movement and you don't you see none and and i believe it's like a shock i believe it's such a big drop it's a shock and it takes them a few days to acclimate because then it's like day two day three and then you start to see the activity pick up and you might get that best movement day you know three or four days into that so you know it's not always just uh, a cold front you know you really gotta there's a lot of things you gotta look into that i think you know impact deer movement but it's a really good critical thought process and, and kind of like a creative thought process too. You talked about like, if it's hot, check your low spots. There's new things that are going to, you said up the value of a certain bedding area that wouldn't have on a different day. And if you are starting to think about the holistic picture here, you can, you don't have to wait for the one cold front to get out when everyone else is going to be out too, by the way, because that's going to increase hunting pressure. But you know, there's some other things that like, well, why don't you go hunt during it when the wind's coming through? Cause maybe you can be a little louder and afford some, you can make some, you can like close the gap on something if you know where they're betting, et cetera. That's right. And, and bucks, you know, we don't talk about it a whole lot, but bucks, bucks will bed for comfort in the extremes. So, you know, a lot of times they bed for, you know, wind and according to hunting pressure. And that's what we're used to. That's the norm. But when there's extremes, extreme cold, extreme heat, they'll bed for comfort a lot of times, as long as that area is like, you know, isn't trampled with humans. Um, so like when you do get that hot and dry, you know, they'll get in those low spots that are shaded, that are dark, that are cool, that have water running through them. I mean, you go, you, you felt it, right. You've been in, in a yep. piece of property or something. And it's, oh yeah. That's what my dog would do. Yeah. Blazing, and, then, and then you get down into these bottoms and it's like, there's a lot of, you know, overstory and you get down by that Creek, it feels 15, 20 degrees cooler. You know, this where these, a lot of times that's where these deer go when in the extremes. So when the ex- extremes happen, there, there's an opportunity there if you if you know your hunting area and know the habits of these deer. But again, it goes back to 
goes back to your scouting. It goes back to your observations, your intimate knowledge of the properties that you're hunting. And mo a lot of the time I'm hunting properties that I know really, really well because, you know, they're on my home turf or whatever. I'm used to them. I've been hunting them for years. Or even some of the spots that I've hunted out of state in Iowa, like I feel like I know them. I might not know them to that level, but I know them pretty good where I can go there like during the rut and bounce around and I'm in great spots. But like the more you know, you know, a big general area and, and those kind of tendencies and trends, that can really that can really up your your chance of success. And I, I've talked about that like on some of the podcasts where I've done about efficiency. It's like having that knowledge is such an advantage for you as a hunter. Um, you know, where the deer go with pressure or where they go in these extreme conditions or, you know, when these certain spots heat up, because now, you know, it's like, man, this funnel is awesome, but it's not awesome till that first or second week of November. So for it to be awesome for me to get a kill there, I need to stay out. I can't start hunting it October 25th and sit there three or four times. And every time you go in there, you're educating and the does start to alter their movements through there or the bucks are coming through there because it's not quite go time. They're going through there and scent checking, but it's after dark. They start picking up your scent and then, you know, you've reduced your chances by 50% or more. Like I think, um, Mark Kenyon, um, he came out with a video. We talked about it. They, there was a study in Auburn and they were trying to, um, study the effects of hunting pressure on deer of various ages, you know, two, three, four, they had a good sample group of various, you know, um, age groups. And what they found was even after one intrusion that mature bucks would, um, reduce their activity in that area by 50%. So that's just one time, you know, one intrusion, you substantially lower your odds. So if you think about that, that's you what know, makes public land so hard because there's other guys out there and gals that you just you don't know. So like maybe you're gonna take the sit, but you don't know if like four other guys made that same choice or not. So you might right. think you're doing yourself a favor. You have no freaking clue, man. Like well, yeah, public when, when is you're such hunting, a challenge. Like, when you're hunting public land, yeah, you got the you got that whole another aspect that you got to contend with, right? But you know, you got to start focusing on not just spots, but you got to focus on you know remote or overlooked remote or overlooked that's that's what you need to do if you can focus on remote or overlooked you're going to dramatically reduce the chances of other people yeah. ruining your hunt or finding a couple your years spot. Ago. So it's those two well, things you know it's yeah. remote or overlooked that's that's what i that's what i focus on if i'm in a pressured area yeah we had some great success with overlooked at a couple properties i mean the, the one that i got my deer and the whole fucking property was overlooked well and then <laughs> You uh you botched it on an overlook spot too out of a yep. pretty nice buck. So and then you know you got real close on an overlook spot on that conservancy property. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have shot a, a stupid doe, but I didn't. I should have actually. Now thinking well, back on it, but well, anyway. here's a, here's a perfect example. It's not deer. I, I mean, I could throw out a ton of deer examples too. But like, I went to Colorado elk hunting two years ago, and um, it was an OTC unit success rate on any elk, you know, male or female is less than six percent i believe it was five in this unit wow um and there were people everywhere there were hunters everywhere and we saw no bulls killed we talked to many hunters they were hearing very few bugles weren't seeing elk me and my buddy were into like 
elk rut fests every single day. And we were hunting right next to the road. We were literally hunting right next to the road. But what it was, it was up this steep face that almost looked like you couldn't safely get over it. But it was from where we parked straight up and over the saddle. It was a it was a 45 minute hike, which is nothing in the mountains. We do that. We start in the dark and we get over there. And we'd be just getting over that saddle in daylight. And yeah, it was sketchy. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. But it was overlooked. Like guys would literally pull off there and they'd get out and they'd look up and they'd do this and they'd get in their car. And that, in that case, it probably was underlooked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, you know, we're, 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 we're a quarter mile from the road, but it takes 45 minutes because it's such an elevation game. But like we're right over the hill and we're in elk and not just elk, big elk. Like I, I hit a herd bull in the shoulder that was enormous. I mean, it was, it was huge for an OTC unit. It was unbelievable. My buddy killed a big six by six. Um, I mean, it was just a phenomenal hunt, but we, we went where other people weren't going because it was too difficult and, and overlooked. So, you know, I, I, when I'm ever, I'm going into a public place where I know pressure is going to be high. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking at the access points. I'm looking at what's remote. Where can I outwork people to get to? Cause I'll do that. Um, or, where are people going to walk by or not even look or think to look? And I'll look for those spots. I look for that good type of habitat or that good, um, you know, that good funnel or that good looking bedding habitat in one of those two places. But then like, you know, I hunt States like Iowa and Illinois and Southern Ohio. And it's like, you know, everybody talks about pressure and I know guys get sick of hearing it, you know, Michigan, Michigan, Michigan. I haven't hunted a place yet where I thought was high pressure. And I've hunted, I've hunted, you know, almost 20 different states. Um, now the highest I've hunted was Missouri. Um, there was a piece of public ground there that I hunted after I killed my, my Iowa buck. I went in there. I, I couldn't believe it. It rivaled what I see in Michigan. Um, but I'm used to extreme pressure. So when I go to these other states that are, that are pressured and they are pressured, they are getting hunted and there are people to me, to me, I have, I have so much room, you know what I mean? I have so much room and there's so many spots that are getting overlooked. And just because there's seven, you know, like in Iowa, there's this one was one chunk. There was, you know, five, I don't know, five or six cars parked in the lot. It was, it was 700 acres. Shoot. You know, like <laughs> to me, that's, that's a lot of, lot of property there. Um, some guys might pull up there and be like, holy crap, you know, there's a ton of guys out here. But I'm like, seven guys can't cover everything. Most of them are probably over here because this looks like it's the best. This is probably overlooked. And some guys probably aren't crossing this river to get to this back part. And, you know, and that's, I don't know. When I go to those other places, it's just, it's it's a little easier to figure out. Because I feel like, I feel like guys that hunt, that grew up hunting extreme pressure, it was awesome, like, training ground to travel and hunt. So now when I hunt out of state, it's, um, it's certainly not easy. I'm not trying to imply that, but like the pressure thing is, is not as big of a factor. It's some general rules that you can kind of go off of. And it seems like it's proven to be effective kind of a method there for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think hunting extreme pressure here has really prepared me well to go out of state and you get a little less pressure and things, 
things don't seem so bad. You know what I mean? There's, they seem, they seem uh, a little easier to figure out and there's, there tends to be more mature deer and just overall just better hunting. So I, I'm, I feel lucky that I'm from Michigan in a way. Like I hate, I don't enjoy hunting here all that much. I do, but it's, I, a hard, it's like, it's I a can't hard knock life, man. Like you, you come out of thicker stuff like that. You're just, it's like training at a higher altitude. You come down to the lower altitude and I'm like, Oh, this is fucking easy. It's just, a different mentality you know you're you're grateful for having a harder time because it makes some other things a bit easy is probably not the right word but you know what i'm saying more yeah it's definitely not easy it's not like i go right. you know out of every time and you know fill a tag in two days that doesn't happen but um you know the, the pressure thing it's it's all relative i guess i guess that's what i should say yeah you know, it's all that's relative. good stuff well we're gonna wind down bring the plane for landing what i didn't mention to you at the beginning is at the end of every episode, we ask you to share your most memorable hunt, but what we've been doing recently to switch it up is to share your okayest moment. And what I mean by okayest moment, if you're not following the okayest hunter, is everyone thinks everyone's got to figure it out. You watch TV shows, YouTube channels, and everyone's not showing the missed shots or the drop bow or the tripping over the log or the, the I forgot this at the truck kind of stuff. So I should have planted the seed and I didn't. So I'm going to put you totally on the spot and ask you to share one of your okayest moments, because especially for a guy like you, that's super technical, passionate, driven, dedicated, experienced, you got to still have some slip ups out there that you're willing to share that are going to get us to, you know, chuckle a little bit here. Oh yeah. Um, I, I would venture to guess I make more mistakes than anybody. Um, certainly like when I look back, like through, you know, those first 15 years of hunting, I made tons of mistakes, but it's cause I was trying like, all the time. I was, I was always trying new stuff. You know what I mean? Like I was finding out what my limits were. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't relying on the outdoor channel and looking at, you know, so-and-so with the deer coming into the food plots and thinking I, this is how I need to hunt. Like I was always trying new things and testing my limits and like, Oh, I saw, I saw a buck, you know, going to that thicket over there. I'm, I'm just going to sneak in there and shoot him. I'm going to sneak him in there, in there and shoot him while he's bedded. Like I had that mentality. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like if I had the mentality of like, if, if anybody can do that, I can do that. You know, I can do that. Um, even though I couldn't do that, <laughs> that's, that was my mentality. Like I would, you know, but I would do that stuff. And then it's like, you know, I got really close to this deer. Like maybe the play is not to go in there and shoot, while, shoot him while he's bedded, but go in there and read the sign and, try to look at the, you know, maybe look at the map and, and, and read the sign as you're going in and, and maybe he's bedded in this little thicket here so I can set up on the ground and just wait for him to come out for the evening. Or I, maybe I can get up in this tree and have a real good advantage or, or a good observation sit for the evening to see where this deer comes out. You know what I mean? So it's like I was fine tuning that, that approach or that, that instinct, I guess, but you can't, you can't develop that gut and that instinct, unless you're pushing the boundaries, you got to push to failure so that you know how to recalculate and bring it back. And, you know, you got to make those mistakes so you can make tweaks so that you can turn them into successes. So, but I'll tell you two real quick ones. One, one, I'll just, I've already touched on it. was that elk. Um, you know, guys, guys think that I'm out there and I'm ice cold and I make no mistakes. It's not true. Um, I make mistakes and I had, I had, the opportunity at a, what would be considered like a world-class, like, you know, OTC type elk, 
you know, in an area where people don't shoot elk this size. And I had the opportunity that I stalked up on him as he was moving his herd of cows away. I trailed the herd. I did everything perfect. You know, I was below them. I was keeping up with them. They said, you can't catch up to elk on the move. Well, I was moving fast and, you know, all my training, my mentality, my aggressive mentality, everything came to fruition there and allowed me to get this, this shot opportunity. Um, and I was able to catch up with those elk and put myself on position to get a great shot at this elk. And when the shot happened, I was so used to, so with whitetails, um, you know, on a, on a typical broadside whitetail, I, I tend to hug that shoulder a little bit. I aim like, you know, lower one third, right in the crease there. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hugging the shoulder because I do pack enough punch to, to bust through that if I need to. Subconsciously, I did that on this elk. Like I did, I just, I'm so used to aiming at the spot. I went to the spot that I always aim and on an elk, man, you want to stay away from that shoulder because their lungs are huge. you got a ton of room back there. So you should really get back from those lung, uh, that shoulder and execute your shot. And I didn't. I hugged that shoulder and I drilled him right in the shoulder. Um, that was my first time elk hunting. Um, you know, I should have been a newbie, not, not shot an elk, not got an opportunity. And I was at full draw on three elk in the 300 range. Um, and I got a shot at the the real big one. Um, and I blew it, you know, I blew it. Um, and that one stings, you know, that one stings. I had another big stinger, uh, last year on a world-class mule deer in Nevada, but if you want a funny one, (laughs) this was, uh, it was a bit embarrassing, but I'll, I'll tell you the story. Um, it was a rut hunt in Illinois, and I was sitting all day. Um, I like to sit all day during the rut, or I like to be in the woods all day. And, you know, it was that time of day where it was like, you know, your stomach is like, oh, man, you know, I got one coming. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to get down. So I, I tend, me personally, like, when it's coming, it's, it's like, I can't control it. It's coming, you know, I have no control. So I'm like, oh, you know, oh, crap, like, it, now's the time like so i'm scurrying down the tree i run over like 50 yards and i find this tree and i drop my pants and i'm taking a you know big dump and uh i'm sitting there and i'm like oh my god you know like this this is terrible you know it was, it was awful <laughs> it's and, wafting. Uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden i hear crunch 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 and i i'm like seriously squatting with my pants down and i, I look behind me and there's this giant this giant, probably the widest buck I've ever seen. At least I got a pretty wide one on the wall, but it was every bit as wide as that. Walking right behind through this funnel, right to where my stand, where I would have been in stand. So I would have shot him if I would have stayed. If I would have stayed four more minutes, I would have shot this thing. And uh, he, you know, obviously he smells something horrendous, and he's freaking gone. Yeah, that was super humbling. And my, my buddies still give me shit about it. And they labeled that the, the poop funnel. So they still call it that <laughs> to this day. So, That's good. Yeah, I, I, I have screw ups just like everybody else. But I will say I make it a point to eliminate screw ups. When I mess up, when I do something, I, I – It's because you're it, taking a shit, not because your equipment, you know, wasn't tuned up right or whatever, right? Right. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe this isn't the greatest example, but when I do make a mistake, I really, it really affects me. Like I feel, I know it's part of hunting, but it affects me like a, 
such a deep level it like eats at me and i i can't stop thinking about it it's just the way my mind works. I, my, my my wife says i have a one-track mind so i'm very tunnel vision on what so like we're trying to buy a fucking minivan right now i tell you what i must have called 10 dealerships yesterday researched about you know six different vans understood all the trims how much dealerships are buying them for like just totally a psycho right i was up last night watching videos on how to negotiate by chris voss from never split the difference I've read yeah. that book twice. I'm rehashing. I'm a freaking psycho. So when deer season rolls around, Greg got a taste of it. Like, it's the only thing I can think about. And when I missed that buck, I had to understand exactly why I missed it. Because it, like, yeah. I needed to understand what the hell went wrong so I could fix it. And now I'm, this right. year, you're fixing to be rolling up in a minivan. Oh, dude. I, You know what? I don't know what the deal is, man. I have no shame. Practicality all the way. That minivan is a very practical thing in life with number three on the way. So... I'll tell you what, don't judge me over there, mister. I'm not judging. I saw the judgment. You were shaking your head. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Nothing but love. That's love, by the way. That is love, yeah. We we are like married over here. I don't know if you can tell. We see each other every Tuesday. Divorced. So we have all this booze here. (laughs) Anyway, I I can relate to that completely. Like I I obsess over things in that in that sense. Um and a lot of guys with deer do, and it's actually unexplainable. Like, I can't even explain why I have such an obsession for these things. Even now, it's not even... Like my wife says, we're a bunch of deer dorks. It's weird, man. Like, I'm still looking... I saw how many deer I see on the way home today, and I'm like, oh, there's one. They're, like, why is that something I care about? When I'm dr- it's, it's just, just how we're weird. wired. Yep. It's the way it is. It's freaking weird. Yeah. You, you gotta be... And you almost gotta be that way to, to, to be good at it, right? You gotta, you gotta have that obsession. It's just keeping it healthy right try to keep a balance but yeah. you know i was i was actually talking to uh uh talking to my girlfriend the other day about it um when you when you keep a balance of things which i do think is the healthy thing to do you know it makes it hard to become great at something you know the greats are were obsessed you know the greats are obsessed with it and it it becomes a part of who they are and uh that's why they become great, but they don't always, it doesn't always mean like by becoming great, you may have done some things and, and prioritize some things, you know, in a way that you shouldn't have. Yep. So I, I have to keep my, my drive and my passion for this sometimes in check for my loved ones. Because as much as I want to be the best deer hunter I, I, I can be, and as much as I want to, you know, have that next experience and climb over that next mountain and shoot that next big deer, they're, they're more important to me than that. Um, so, And hopefully someday they get into it with you, right? And you can share those experiences with them. Yeah, that's, yeah for sure. For, for sure. But I, I, have to, I have to sometimes keep myself in check a little bit during that hunting season. I'll get laser focused on something and, you know, I tend to kind of get tunnel vision and and block out some of the stuff that is more important to me. So I I've, you know, it's, it's a constant balance, but I've learned to, to be able to do that and still give my loved ones what they need and still hunt at, you know, at a pretty high level. Um, so I don't know. It, in your dying day, if, if God said, I'll give you I one more day it. to hunt or one more day to swim with your daughter, it's it's not even a fucking contest. Not so, even a contest. You know, that that's how it goes. So as long yep. as you can try to adapt that a little bit throughout the season, like, okay, this is a dumb deer. I need to go spend time with my kid. It 
you can put it back into perspective. It, it's tricky though, because like you said the conditions stack up, and this is the day you need to go get it done. Yep. Ah, you just. I said, I, I told uh, I told Mark Kenyon once. I said my daughter has saved more big bucks lives than than anybody. <laughs> That's um, a good point. There have been so many times where. You know, she just asked me to stay home or she wants to practice soccer. Or she's like, dad, can we go to the gym or, you know, can we do this? And I'm like, of course, you know, of course. Yep. And, you know, I'll go check a camera or whatever. And, and the, you know, the buck out, you know, buck I was after comes through there. In fact, um, just this past year, um, the buck I ended up killing, the, the main buck I was after in Ohio, it was the morning. Um, it was the morning of opening day. And I went glassing out in the morning instead of hunting because I was having trouble locating this deer. He was very nomadic um, in that kind of that area of northern Ohio. And so I was covering miles with the glass, and I freaking I locate him, and he's bedded. He's on his feet at at daylight, and he's kind of feeding through this like this bean these bean fields, and he just lays down right in the beans. And it's like you know I don't know what time it was. It was like eight o'clock or something. And I I sit there for an hour. And he doesn't move. And he's in this little weed patch right in the middle of weeds. There's a drainage ditch that goes right towards him and makes a bend. And I could get in a tree right there and be within 50 yards of him when he stands up. Or I almost felt like I could just crawl and get set up, you know, 30, 40 yards away and just wait for him to stand and shoot him. The, 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 literally the buck I've been thinking about all year. And my daughter has a soccer game that evening. And, uh, you know, I chose the soccer game and it, yeah, it was, you would have felt uh, guilty about it. You would have got it. You would have felt guilty for getting that buck. Absolutely. You know, and that, that's, that's just me. Like I, I, I talked about this on Tony Peterson's podcast, but like I, I had a dad that wasn't there for me. Um, we lived in the same town. In fact, he lived four miles from me and I hardly ever saw him and he put other things in front of me. You know, he wasn't really in my life substantially at all. Um, so I tend to be the opposite of that. Yep. I'm, you know, I'm there for everything with her and I won't miss it. And I try to have like really special experiences. Like with her and I, will just take a road trip alone and just, just go, you know, and sleep in the truck or sleep in a tent or get a hotel or whatever. And just these really cool adventures. She calls them our adventures. And, you know, so she'll, she's always going to take precedence over hunting, but hunt, make no mistake. Like hunting is, is, who I am it is, is who I am at my core and, and I live for it. But, uh, for the time being, she is going to take precedence. Yeah, you over get it. one shot of being a parent. That's it. Cause once they're grown, that, that was your shot. Like, so you look back and did you do it as good as you could have or not? You know, that's, that's the kind of way that I try to look at anyways, but, um, that's right, man, it's good to talk to you. I'm glad that you were able to make the show. I'd love to invite you back on, uh, for additional episodes when, you know, when you think it might make sense, uh, when it's a good fit for you as sure. far as time-wise. And we'd love to get you on. I don't know if you know, we do, we're spinning up uh, a segment we call Tactic Talk. We're going to be recording okay. episodes in July and deploying them in August throughout the season. Tactic Talk is a 15-minute, which I'm going to struggle to keep you in 15 minutes if you if you agree to it. But we pick a really specific granular topic. There's no intros. There's no pleasantries. There's no how's your day. None of that shit. We just go, boom, dive in. And then we okay. cut it at 15 minutes, and that's the episode. That's it. Yeah, it went so, over real well last year when you started it. It was. It's a hit. Um, it took off like a rocket ship. I mean, that way someone doesn't have to listen to two, an hour or two hours of stuff to get the meat. The meat's on the bone, and it's right here in front of you. So um, 
you know, we did that last season. It was a huge hit. So we're going to roll it out again this season. Um, I want to talk to the guys that are getting it done, that are putting on mature deer. That's the, I'm not the expert. I'm not saying that you are either necessarily, but you have experience. So um, if you're willing to come back on that, I think that'd be fantastic. This is a great episode. There's a ton of knowledge here. I think this will be something that people are going to have to listen to a couple different times. So, um, you know, we're going to end the live broadcast. For those that were able to tune in, there's still a bunch of folks hanging out here. We had a lot of commentary. I'd, I'd encourage you to go back through that for any questions that may have been missed, et cetera. Um, this will be in podcast land tonight. That's how we roll. So, you know, we'll tag you and everything once it's out there and, uh, you know, obviously stay in touch. So any final thoughts for anybody? No, it was fun guys. I, I enjoyed it. Um, the tactic talk sounds fun to you. So just let me know. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Yeah. Hell yeah. I'm going to end the live stream and then we'll keep you on for just a minute here to uh, debrief and everyone that tuned in. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Have a good one. See you guys. What's up, everyone? Anthony Heller here with Deervane, and this week's tip of the week is to stay away from poison ivy. (laughs) I hate this stuff, and for whatever reason, about eight years ago, I became hyperallergic to it. I smell the stuff, and I get the rash all over my body. It's ridiculous. I've been urgent care multiple times for it, and it's just so annoying. But because of that, I've learned some good ways to, to avoid it in the woods. All right, first one. Obviously, do whatever you work you can before summer hits. We're already into summer, so you can't do that. But next year, you know, get out before summer hits and poison ivy really starts blossoming. Second thing, whenever you're going in the woods, regardless of uh, regardless of how hot it is or the weather, wear long sleeves, wear gloves, wear pants, and try not to touch your face. Like I highly suggest that. That's that's how you're going to get poison ivy all over. Poison ivy is, it's not the plant itself, it's the oil on the plant that gives you the rash and can make, make you itch everywhere. So, you know, you rub up against it with your with your gloves or your hands, you know, and then you touch your hands to your face and all of a sudden you have poison ivy by your eye or it's on your cheek or something like that. So, that, that'd be my biggest tip is to wear long sleeves, long pants, and don't touch your face when you're out there. Be very precise when you're walking through the woods. Don't do a ton of just like random ass scouting when you're out there right now. Have a plan, have a very precise plan and go complete it when you're hanging your trail cameras or whatever it is, and then get out of there. And the last thing is, is wash, shower, like immediately when you get out of the woods with Dawn dish soap. Poison ivy that, like I said, it's the oil, it's the urishi oil or something like that, that, that actually causes the rash and you can get rid of that with Dawn dish soap. So, um, if you're, or any sort of dish soap, any sort of soap that cuts through grease. So if you are a greaser oil, so if you are out in the woods, you know, you're doing your thing, you get back. First thing I do every single time is wash with Dawn dish soap. And if you can't get to that, go jump in a lake, jump in a stream, jump in a river, whatever, anything you can do to get that oil off you because that's what's going to be the problem. And it sticks around essentially like infinitely. So even if you have, uh, if you walk through it and you know you walk through it, okay, that's all right. Just don't touch anything. Go shower and get your clothes in the laundry because you can get poison ivy. You can get the rash from those clothes weeks later months later even a year later you can get it so to that end you know be careful about you know sitting in your truck or grabbing other stuff grabbing a bag where you put your clothes like you got to be really meticulous with it and it's annoying as hell but poison ivy big poison ivy rash is worse all right so that's my tip of the week really long one this week 
Um, but, uh, but I hope it helps some of you out there. All right. Catch you later.